Hello, and welcome to Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? This podcast is a resource dedicated to those struggling with eating disorders. If you are struggling with an eating disorder or know someone who is, maybe a brother, sister, daughter, wife, we want to be here to provide resources and offer hope. I am Dina Lewis, and I'm here with my husband, co-host, Brian Lewis. We are not doctors, but we do come with more than 20 years history in dealing with eating disorders. Whether you found us on purpose or by mistake, whatever the case, we hope by the end of this episode, you have learned something, or at least if you are struggling, you do not feel alone. My name is Dina. And I'm Brian. And we're here to share our struggle with an eating disorder. We have 20 years plus recovery experience. We're not doctors, but we're just here to help and inspire others that are struggling with this disease. And we're going to do that through sharing personal memories of, of what it was like. And, you know, through those memories, we hope to offer not only support, but also information and, you know, sort of like uh, you don't you don't necessarily have to think you're alone in this disease because it is a very isolating disease. So you don't have to sit there and go, I'm the only one with this problem. And maybe through relating our experience, you can go, yeah, look at that. I'm not the only one. So I thought it would be helpful today to go through the road to treatment. I've asked Dina to collect thoughts and personal recollections and some of her written diary entries about what it was like, what a daily routine was, and that path to treatment. And then a little bit about what treatment was like, and we'll we'll take that journey. So Dina, can you tell us what your day was like when you were in the disease? You know, you're fully immersed, you're fully there. What was that day like? And take us through that first treatment facility. Okay, well, I'm going to share a journal entry that I just chosen that was before I entered treatment, but this is just something I had written down after visiting a doctor. It says, I had been seeing my doctor monthly to have my blood counts checked. They said I was in need of a blood transfusion. If I didn't do something about my health soon... Brian and I talked together a lot pertaining to the issue of my health and what I should do. I remember the the session I had when I visited my therapist that week. She mentioned to me that I might want to consider going to treatment for an eating disorder again because doing it on my own was not working. I just began to cry. I didn't want to hear those words or leave my husband and family and go into a treatment center. At the same time, I knew if I didn't go somewhere and get help, I didn't have long to live. I was living on spared time as it was. I remember, from my point of view, I remember we had just been married. We had a tiny little two-bedroom apartment that we, you know, we decorated and we got some used furniture. And, you know, we were living like a newly married couple, like all new, newly married couples do. But it became apparent each day that there was something an issue there was a there was a problem and i remember you know i'd come home from work we'd have dinner and then the food talk would start and it was you know i'm afraid to eat this i'm afraid because i ate this this is going to happen and and usually those conversations happened just before we went to bed and i'm afraid 
that I, a lot of times I wasn't very patient or tuned into those because it was the end of the day and I was tired and I wanted to go to sleep. And plus somebody was asking me about, you know, things that I just didn't understand. I just didn't get, you know, why is she so worried about this that she ate or this thing that she's going to eat two days from now or this thing that she ate two days ago. And so I was just totally baffled by this disease that was, you know, apparent, but I didn't even recognize at that point that it was really a disease. I, you know, this was somebody that, yes, I, we had dated for 10 years, but I didn't know her on a day-to-day basis. I didn't live with her, so I didn't know if this was common. I didn't know if this was just her. I, did, I didn't get it. That's kind of what I remember from those times, and I don't know what a daily routine you remember, Dina. Well, I mean, the struggle was real, and I want to make known that that it didn't start all out like from the get-go that this was my intention as to have an eating disorder. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, nobody chooses just to go. I'm going to have an eating disorder. Nobody thinks that it occurred over a good eight to ten-year time period, and it got worse and worse and worse, obviously. But by the time we got married, I think it, it hit its high. You know, I think it got to the worst of its worst, if that could, is that, if that's possible. Now I didn't have my mom after me all the time. I was more independent and by myself a lot. I didn't reach out to a lot of people. I became very inward. From the time my alarm would go off in the morning, I had a standard routine that I had to follow. That routine was, you know, you get up, you weigh yourself. And a lot of the times if Brian was still home, I would have to like flush the toilet or turn on the water in the sink at the same time so that he couldn't hear me get on the scale. And being on the scale meant everything had to come off. I mean, we're talking rings, necklaces, clothes, obviously, um, everything to get on that scale. And it wasn't just a one-time experience. It was over and over again because There was a compulsive side to me as the disease got worse that made me have to check and recheck and recheck. And it's not that it didn't go unnoticed because Brian knew what I was doing, especially when I knew you got on the scale and got off the scale because I'd hear it and I'd go, What is she doing getting on and off the scale? That's really weird. But again, we'll say over and over again this is a family disease, really a disease that eats families. But I couldn't figure out why she had to get on and off. But I also didn't ask because I figure, you know, that's just her routine. I don't know what it is. I don't get it, but I'm not going to ask any questions. And a lot of the times I think, well, it was extremely exhausting to have an eating disorder because I had to hide so much from everyone. Because at first, you know, it's not like I was so thin that people could notice it, but it was like keeping the conversation going all the time if I was with my mom or the other family members so they weren't going to be talking about my weight. But having the voices, like I'd open up the cabinets to where the food is in the kitchen and I'd have like, I would describe it as like an angel and a devil on one side. And one would be saying, eat this. And the other was like, you're going to get fat if you eat that. And it was this constant struggle. And I found that at the end of each day, the only time I didn't hear the voices was when I was sleeping. And that was my only like escape from the eating disorder. And it wasn't that I enjoyed being in the eating disorder. I wanted to end it, but that meant change and change is scary. And I didn't know where to go or what to do. And there was also the, 
you know, when we would have those food talks late, just before we went to bed, I remember part of it was also the conversation would inevitably go to, I'm afraid I'm going to die during the night. And it's like, you know, I don't know how to address that and to say, well, I don't want you to be fearful of death. But on, on the other hand, I do see that you do need help and maybe the help would, you know, alleviate some of this, I'm afraid I'm going to die in the middle of the night. So, you know, it wasn't like we didn't know that there was a problem. We did know that there was a problem. And I think you, you probably in, in your daily routine said, well, I need help. I need to go to the doctor. And now I don't know at what point you found, I don't know if maybe your mom prompted you and said, just go get a checkup or just go do this. But at some point, I know that happened. Well, my mom was a nurse, so she was aware of something was going on. And when I was still living at home, she would have me weigh myself. And I had to, she'd put me on, you know, you got to drink this and you got to do that. And if I didn't weigh enough, then, you know, the next step, whatever the next step would be. And so I began kind of some tricks. Sometimes I feel bad that I'm going to share these with you because I don't, my intention is not to give you something to do in order to lose weight or to, to trick your family or play games, but I want you to know how real it was. Well, this is part of the thing, just as much as an alcoholic hides the bottles from you so that you don't see the disease, it's the same way with an eating disorder, right? You're going to do these things that affect your weight so that you don't see the disease. So I would go into her room, I will just say every Monday morning, and I would have my pajamas on, but I'd have to figure out how am I supposed to gain weight um, this next week. So I had to start being really clever. And so I started putting a lot of change in my pockets. I would put shampoo bottles down the legs of the pants of my pajamas. Uh, don't ask how they stayed there and didn't fall out. But this was the love of my life. This eating disorder was my whole life. And I was going to keep it a secret as long as I could. You know, I dealt with a lot of trauma growing up. And then being in treatment, you deal with a lot of young ladies that have been in trauma and you kind of wonder to yourself, well, did I deal with that? I don't remember any of that. But there was a lot of loss that I dealt with at a young age that my family didn't deal with very well. And I think I struggled on how to deal with it and how to live with it. We didn't communicate too well as a family. I held on to a lot of feelings. And I didn't even know what feelings were until I got into treatment. But at the same time, that daily routine was very important to me to keep exactly. So when somebody, when something happened out of the norm and, you know, an appointment came up and it was going to tweak my routine, that would give me anxiety and panic. You know, I remember going outside and taking walks and I would walk and do exercise. I didn't care if it snowed or rained or we were having a tornado or wherever, but I was going to get it in no matter what. How do I say this? Um, I'm embarrassed by some of my actions. Um, I'm embarrassed how I hurt my family during it. 
and the lying and the cheating that I had, I did. And when I'm talking about lying and cheating and cheating is like, I didn't steal from them, but I, in a way I did. I mean, I took away where they could trust me, but I feel really, really, really bad because the person I hurt the most was my mom and my husband because Brian knew me before my eating disorder. He knew me during my eating disorder and thank God he knows me after. And I'll just say there was, from my perspective, we may go into some detail later, but up until this point, we we had had trauma. I mean, in addition to you growing up and being, you're, you're an only child, well, you're not an only child, but you were an only child because when you got home, nobody else was there. And your mom wasn't there, your dad wasn't there, and you came home to an empty house. That is neglect, and that is abuse. And I think... To a certain extent, our generation accepted that as normal, but I think in hindsight, it's really traumatizing to somebody to come home and to a big empty house, and now this is on you. Whether it's preparing the meals, whether it's get your homework done, whatever it is, that was all kind of up to you. <clears throat> what I wanted to say is some of the traumas that we had endured, your older brother had liver cancer at the time. This was the 1980s. He had six months to live and pretty much hit that six months mark and passed away. And in addition to that, my wife was also in a very serious car accident. She had a brain injury. And so, you know, through those traumas and experiences, part of what you're trying to process, at least as a family member, is, is this part of the accident? Is this part of the trauma? Is this her dealing with her brother. And so you start, there was this pattern as a family member because there were these traumas of doing things for Dina and trying to make things easier for her with all good intentions. But I think that looking back on it and knowing now that was really feeding the addiction and the disordered eating. Because I think, and I don't want to speak for you, but at least from my perspective, what I think it did was it caused more. I don't have coping. This is how I'm coping is this. Well, I think I had to grow up rather quickly in a way because I had to learn how to take care of. And I, I noticed that when I did certain things, it made people happy. I figured if I did certain things and made them happy, like cleaning the house or cleaning the bathrooms or making dinner, they loved me more. And so that's how I I looked at it. And I just felt like at some point watching my brother pass away from cancer at such a young age, and it's going to sound crazy, but I noticed that when he was sick, he got a lot of attention. And so being kind of the only child, but I really wasn't, I realized by being sick, I got a love and attention and I kind of used that to my advantage. And when I was in that car accident, you know, everybody was hovering over me and I got so much attention and love. And then when I started getting better, it pulled away and I didn't know how to cope with it. But to kind of switch corners, there's so much that we need, we're going to share with you guys and it's going to be emotional and it's going to bring back some feelings. And I am going to have to be careful. It doesn't matter if I have 20 something years of recovery. It's like the first day every day. And I have to be very careful 
And it's probably taken me 20 something years to be able to do this um, because I needed to make sure that I was in the right place and that it wasn't going to bring back feelings that I would want to go back there. But that's not an option in my life today. I'm a mom, I'm a wife, um, I'm a sister, and I need to be here for those people. So just to reset and take back, so I think Dina was still on her mom's health care. She hadn't got on my health care yet. And we had a, a big HMO. And I know she was having appointments with the HMO, and they were doing things like blood work, and they were weighing her at the doctor's office. And, you know, the every, with every appointment, it seemed like the doctors would scratch their head and go, well, yeah, we don't know what this is but let's do this additional test and see if we can't figure it out. And so you kind of live from test to test to test, kind of all the while knowing what the problem is, but, you know, kind of asking the medical community to help make this diagnosis of whatever it is. Let's talk about what it is. But it seemed like at the time that this HMO was just going to do test after test after test. And for me, you know, the thing that really kind of caps it off for me was I was there at the doctor's appointment because they had scheduled they were going to do a bone marrow test because again they couldn't figure it out and so you know let's just keep doing tests and this bone marrow test I remember Dina had some anxiety about it and you know I was trying to be reassuring like you know this is a test it's I don't I don't know how much pain's involved but you know certainly it's if it was a lot of pain they'd address it or whatever. And so I remember going to that doctor's appointment and I remember seeing her and they weighed her and then they did the bone marrow test. And I remember being angrier and angrier and angrier. The more I thought about, you know, at some point you see the ball of string unraveling and you kind of hope that the people who you put your medical care into are going to be there to help wind the yarn back up. And so when that didn't happen at this specific appointment, I remember just shaking my head and going, I remember even thinking at the time, they're going to do tests on her until she dies. Because there's no way you let a woman walk out of your office Mr. Physician, who's doing the bone marrow test. This is a woman who walked out of your office, and I'm sorry I'm going to get a little angry here, but I'm not sorry. This doctor, and I'm going to tell you straight up, this doctor let a woman walk out of his office that was 57 pounds at 5'7 and did a bone marrow test and still had the audacity to say, I still don't know what's wrong you know, in my view, set her home to die because that would have been easier for them. They don't have any paperwork or anything else to do. To say they didn't know what was going on, I think is disingenuous. They knew what wasn't going on and still didn't take any action. So at some point, we did find a, an inpatient facility in North Hollywood, California, that was Raider Institute, and I remember back in the day, there was a bunch of television commercials for Raider Institute, but it was mostly weight loss. So it was kind of interesting to me that like, oh, they, 
they must help with people who struggle with food. So Dina did enroll in the inpatient facility at Raider Institute. And and we hadn't even been married a year. I don't think no. we'd been married six months, maybe. You know, there again, it was like, okay, well, she's she's getting help. She's doing what she needs to do. And, you know, there were opportunities for me. She had to stay there. It was inpatient. So it was kind of like a, it was odd because it was more hospital than it was treatment facility. Um, it was part of, part of a now closed North Hollywood um, hospital. It was kind of one separate wing. Patients that were struggling with eating disorders that were part of this program. And they did 12-step meetings and and... I could join them for, it was either lunch or dinner or something, but I went every opportunity I could because I, I really, part of my journey in this was I wanted to learn. Initially, I wanted to know what caused this. Was it something in the car accident? Was it something in the death? Is it something in the, the way that we were raised or whatever? I just wanted to answer what caused this. That was my initial uh, drive, but I wanted to learn as much as I could. So every opportunity I was given to, you know, join a a group counseling session, I would do that. Or if I could go there for uh, meal time, I'll do that too. And it was interesting because, you know, when you're staying in a hospital, you get a menu and you kind of check a limited menu, but a menu. You know, do you want the chicken? Do you want it with this or with this? What color Jello do you want? You know, and and that's kind of what she did and then we all went to the cafeteria and then they pulled your tray and served you tray and you were going to sit there and eat and i remember thinking at the time like okay but this is great while she's here but what's going to happen when we go home well certainly they'll address that and again i put my faith in the middle community that they were going to figure this out and offer some help and some solutions that first stay was pretty much a joke. I mean, it wasn't a joke when it came to money, paying for how much it cost us to be there or me to be there. But I remember being scared to death because I was in a room all by myself and I'd never lived on my own. Or I mean, I went straight from my mom's, my parents' house to an apartment with my husband. And all of a sudden now I'm in this room with no one but myself and no one that I know or are familiar with. But to give a synopsis of that stay, I gained enough to get out of there. I think I went from like 57 pounds to 90 pounds. I never, that's where I topped before I went home. It was about a three-month stay. And I played the system. It was easy. It was really shocking to hear that you could throw food away. Yeah, I mean, they'd give me food and there'd be somebody sitting there every once in a while while you ate and I would just pitch it and throw it in the trash. Am I proud of that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The way the facility was located, it was on it's kind of on the side of the street, I guess. And I was able to get out and go for walks and come back without them even noticing I've been gone. And I would could do that twice a day. I mean, it's just silly now that I look back that I was able to do that. But I mean, I had a mission and I was gonna get it done, hell or high water, you know, and I did it. Obviously, that treatment didn't last long. It was three months and I went home, you know, just when I thought I got this together, I can do this. I figured this out. That's when everything came tumbling down again. And within less than six months, I was right back down to 57 pounds, 
probably worse than ever. I was doing my same thing I was always doing before, over-exercising. I was eating, just not enough for what a person needed to maintain their weight. But, you know, there were times I went outside and walked and I'd have kids yelling at me from across the park or whatever, like, just eat. And I remember getting so mad at these kids. But you have to know that I wasn't in my right state of mind either because I was malnourished. I wasn't getting the nutrients I needed to be able to think clearly and to act clearly and to let these little kids make me so angry. But there's something kind of cool that came out of that. After we did go to another, we end up, I ended up going to another treatment stay. And I know this is kind of jumping the gun a little bit, but you never know who notices you out there or you're aware because I remember getting to the point where I was at a healthy weight and I was doing well. And I remember going to the grocery store and there were people like, are you that girl that used to walk all over the park and down, you know, the neighborhood all the time? And I'm thinking, yeah. And they're like, we were so worried about you. So an eating disorder, you're like tunnel vision, you know, you all you're thinking about is you. It's a very selfish disease. and it was just so amazing to know that people were thinking about me and praying for me that I had never met that when they saw me, they're like, you look so much younger. And you, I mean, it was just such an amazing, I didn't think people gave, cared at all. Well, and it's not only tunnel vision when you're in the disease, it's also very isolating. I remember Lots of times people would invite us to this place or that place, or we'd have a function to go to. And it was just like, for Dina to confront food, it was just, it was easier just not to go. And I became complacent, like, well, if you don't want to go, then I don't want to go. And that meant like, you know, family birthday parties or, hey, because I mean, if you think about the things that you do with your family, what's 90% of what you get together for? It's a, it's a meal, you know, and that always drew anxiety for Dina and just didn't want to go. And so we would end up not going and, and just really isolating. My parents divorced when I was young and my dad wasn't really in my life really at all. He, he had his own business and he worked all the time. And I can say that when I was in treatment, my dad said something to me one time and he said to me, um, we were sitting with the doctors and there he was like, I was like, I'm trying, I'm trying. And he's like, Dina, you have to stop trying. You just have to do it. And those words were like, hit me like a rock because I don't know, there was just something said about, you know, I really didn't think my dad gave a crap about me. And that really, something about saying that really made me wake up and do it. But I want to just thank you all for listening to this first episode. Super nervous doing this, but very, very grateful. We hope this helps your family or just an individual that you know that maybe you can share it with them so they don't feel alone. We hope you guys stay tuned and hear back with us every Wednesday. Just know that we're here to support you and your family, and you don't have to do this alone. Keep coming back. It works when you work it. So, so work, work it. it. You, you are, are worth, worth it. it. Thank you for joining us. If you found this podcast useful 
or we have given you hope and you want to reach out and contribute, feel free to do so at eatthatfat at gmail.com. That's eatthatfat at gmail.com. Our pledge to you is that every penny that we get in contributions goes to production costs and keeping the lights on. We will not pay ourselves, but anything above and beyond production costs will go to benefit organizations that specialize in eating disorders. Please reach out to us if you need resources or you just need to talk. You are not alone and there are people who care. Keep coming back. It works if you work it, so work it. You are worth it. <music>